Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, starting around verse 6 this day. And would you bow with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for uh, all that you do for us. Grateful, Lord, for people who stood up for your truth, the truth that Scripture alone guides our lives, the truth that grace alone can save us, the truth that we need to put our trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Him alone for salvation, not some kind of indulgences, not some kind of work on our part, good works on our part, but rather we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Thank you, Lord, that as we stand before you in eternity, we can only boast that we have believed Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our religious rituals, but that we have trusted the one who went to Calvary's cross and died in our place. Lord, as always, we pray that you will send those our way who have yet to trust Christ as Savior. And we pray this day in this service and in the second service later on that if there are those who have yet to trust Christ, that they would put their trust in him today. Not wait another day, another hour, another minute, but trust your son. Lord, open our eyes to your truth. Help us to be as committed to marriage as you are. And help us to know that we can trust you with every part of our lives, including our marriages. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my uh, absolute favorite books that I, I recommend to everybody uh, if you want a you want a refresher for your marriage, <clears throat> excuse me, I recommend Roger and Becky Tarabasi. There are a lot of good books, and I'll share I'll share those with you, Pastor Chris, uh, Pastor Steve, uh, also Adam. I know have favorite books, and so I'll compile a list and share those with you next week. But uh, my favorite is Roger and Becky Tarabasi have a book entitled How to Live With Them Since You Can't Live Without Them. And uh, it's a great title and it's a great book. I like it because uh, it is not only, uh, I believe, uh, biblically sound, it's also practical, with practical steps to take in, in uh, marriage. Uh, they write this, one particular activity sets Ro Roger and me up for conflict because of our differing personalities. In this area, we are almost daily tested, tried, and challenged. An unofficial survey of our friends has assured us that this activity is a common area of conflict in most marriages. It is driving. Roger's phlegmatic side takes over when he is at the wheel. He proceeds at a slow pace as if he had nothing else to do in life Nowhere to go, no schedule to keep. I, on the other hand, drive my car with one purpose in mind, to get where I'm going as fast as possible by using all available shortcuts. 
or time savers, so while some may characterize my driving as an Indy 500 style, they may describe Roger's style as the slow boat to China. When I'm behind the wheel, Roger feels as if he should be wearing a helmet and racing suit. When he is behind the wheel, I feel like a turtle who is being passed by anything and everything, but I'm not a quiet turtle. <laughs> so I point to faster lanes, give directions to quicker routes. I didn't know they were in our car. <laughs> so, so I point to faster lanes, give directions to quicker routes, or comment about the bicycles passing our car. <laughs> Needless to say, these differences in our driving styles on occasion create tension. In the past, I've tried to control myself by asking him if he knew the speed limit. By his look, he let me know that I had gotten too pushy. For the longest time, we continued to have tension over this difference without finding a way to drive in the same car, without fighting about the driving. Finally, we consciously agreed that our personalities are different and always will be, and that we drive differently and probably always will. We came to a point of accepting each other's style of driving and laid a few ground rules that could help us avoid some of the tension. Here's what we've come up with. If I'm the driver, Roger just holds on for dear life. And though I've not gotten a speeding ticket in more than 13 years, we have decided in advance that even if I get a ticket for speeding, I'll have to pay for it. When Roger is driving, he usually doesn't mind if I direct him to the place where we are going. But I can't tell him to switch lanes too many times or question him about how long it takes to get there. I have had to decide to enjoy the time with him instead of worrying about how fast or slow he is moving. But if we're really in a hurry, I drive. <laughs> now, I love that story, and, it, and it's great. And I think many, many couples, if not every couple, identifies uh, with that story. But as, as I thought about that, and I thought about our passage of Scripture, I thought to myself, if we can't even work it out about driving in the same car, how do we ever make marriage work? If we can't even drive together in the same car without tension or conflict, how do we make the greater issues of marriage work? And so that's part of my goal in uh, taking a little more time in this passage, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, uh, is to look at uh, what Mark is saying, and we'll review that in just a moment and get into some new material today, but also, what are some strategies that those of us who are married can use to produce in our lives the oneness that God desires for us? J.C. Ryle, <coughs> Ryle was an author and preacher who lived from 1816 to 1900, but he said something that is as fresh today as it was in 1857 when he wrote it. He said this, It is a mournful fact that few steps in life are generally taken with so much levity, self-will, and forgetfulness of God as marriage. Few are the young couples who think of inviting Christ to their wedding. Happy are they, however, who in the matter of marriage observe three rules 
and I thought these rules were great, whether they're 1857 or 2023. I think these rules are fantastic. The first is to marry only in the Lord and after prayer for God's approval and blessing. The second is not to expect too much from their partners. Now, I like that. I like that. The second rule that he lays out is that we're not to expect too much from our partners and to remember that marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners and not of two angels. That's why I almost humorously say that in my book, Biblically Speaking, there are no compatible couples. When you look at what the Scripture says, when you look at what it says about us, uh, our, our, uh, who we are and how we react to each other, especially because of and since the fall, which brought sin and death into the world, it is difficult for two people with varying personalities, as we read in the, in the story of the driving, with varying personalities uh, to, to mesh and to mesh in the oneness that God desires for marriage to have. So we'll, we'll take a look at that. So the second is not to expect too much from their partners. The third rule is to strive first and foremost for one another's sanctification. The more holy married people are, the happier they are. What a great statement, something I don't think we ever think about. The holier married, the, the more holy married people are, the happier they are. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might set it apart, sanctify it, make it holy. Uh, he's the example for us in marriage. Well, what we looked at last week, we looked at the first five verses of chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. So as we said last week, they were up at the north side of the Sea of Galilee. They went south into Judea, and then they went east across the Jordan River into an area called Perea, an area that Herod Antipas ruled in. He's the one who put John the Baptist to death, who beheaded him. And uh, again, crowds came to him, and he began to publicly teach once, once again, and as is, was his custom, he taught them again. But as usual, there is more and more opposition to him. More and more the religious leaders were seeking for ways to put him to death. And so we read that some Pharisees came and tested him. And you, you might put the words in here that they tried to trap him. That's the idea of testing him here. They tried to trap him. Some Pharisees came and tested him, tried to trap him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And uh, they, they were hopeful that they would get him to say something that would get him in trouble with Herod or say something that would contradict Moses or take sides in the Hillel Shammai debate that we talked about last week. Uh, they were hope, hopeful that it somehow would trap Jesus. But Jesus says to them in verse 3, what did Moses command you? He immediately and deftly turns their attention from the prevailing days, uh, from the prevailing views of the day 
to the scriptures. And so he uh, says to them, what did Moses command you? He replied, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And we looked at what that was last week and the tape is available on our website if you care to, if you missed that and would like to hear it. It was because of your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, this law Jesus replied. And then starting at verse 6, Jesus gives God's view of marriage. Starting at verse 6, Jesus gives God's view of marriage. And I like what J. Vernon McGee said, Jesus turns it from a discussion of divorce to a discussion of marriage. And verse 6 we read, but at the beginning of creation, Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus gives God's view of marriage by going back to creation, back to the creation order, and back to when God instituted marriage and the reasons that he instituted marriage. So Jesus goes all the way back to creation, and he quotes Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, and Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Uh, Adam and Eve are the first couple, and we see in this passage that God defines marriage as a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong union. That's important. From the very beginning, God's intention for marriage, God's definition of marriage, and by the way, God's definition of marriage is the only one that counts. I don't care what Congress passes next time. I don't care what laws somebody else may pass. It will not change God's definition of marriage, and God's definition of marriage stands in Genesis chapter 1, 27, and chapter 2, verse 24. God lays it out that marriage is a monogamous, that is, one man and one woman, not one man, many women, one woman, many men. One man, one woman, it's monogamous, it's heterosexual, that is a man and a woman, a male and a female, and it's a lifelong union. It's a relationship that's permanent in God's sight. So that's God's definition of marriage. Now, we, we stopped here last week when we looked at verse 7. Uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There are three elements that we read here, three elements of marriage. The first is, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. What is being observed here is that one relationship is changed and a new primary relationship is established. Before we are married, the primary relationship in our lives is with our parents. That's the biblical thinking. Before we are married, the primary relationship is with our parents. But once we marry, 
the primary relationship in our lives is to be our spouse, is to be our spouse. We should not be going back to, to our mothers and fathers and asking them to take sides against our spouse or to uh, mediate between us. We should be realizing that this new relationship of marriage takes precedent over all former relationships and particularly it takes precedent over the relationship between parents and child. So the way I like to put it is the first element of marriage based on, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, is the way I like to say it is, first of all, be first in each other's lives. Be first in each other's lives. That's what God is laying out here as his definition of marriage. We are first in each other's lives. There's leaving of one relationship to establish a new exclusive relationship which supersedes all others. This marriage signifies a change in the parental relationship for each person. You leave physically, but you must also leave emotionally. Sometimes even though we leave our parents' home or we leave physically uh, by going to another place from where our parents are, but there's still an emotional tie. Now, don't get me wrong, we ought to love our parents. We ought to respect their advice. We ought to respect them, but they are not our new, our primary relationship. Our primary relationship is with our spouse with our spouse. So there's a change in the parental relationship. We leave physically, but we must also leave emotionally. Parents become trusted advisors, respected friends, but the marriage relationship takes precedent over all other relationships. The marriage relationship takes precedent over all other relationships. Dr. Louis Barbieri of Dallas Theological Seminary put it this way, in marriage, God joins male and female together in an inseparable bond. This bond is a higher calling than the parent-child relationship. So that's the first part. Be first in each other's lives. The second part of this definition of marriage, which God gives us in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, is, and be united to his wife, be united to his wife. United is a strong term, which means to join to or stick to. The idea is to literally be glued to each other, bonded to each other, nothing between us. So how can we apply that to us today? While we are to be first in each other's lives, secondly, we are to let nothing and no one come between us. We are to let nothing and no one come between us. The idea is to be bonded together. Don't let family, friends, work, school, career, children, or trials come between us. The first and foremost primary relationship once you are married is of that to your, to your, you to your mate. That is the first relationship, the primary relationship, and you need to be, and I need to be first in each other's lives. And then secondly, let nothing and no one come between us. 
The third part of this definition of marriage is found in the words, and they will become one flesh. Not only are we first in each other's lives, not only do we let nothing and no one come between us, but thirdly, we build oneness with our mate. The oneness that God desires is complete emotional and spiritual oneness that's illustrated by the physical oneness of the marriage union. One writer put it this way, totally united in life, purpose, and pleasure. Totally united in life, pleasure, and purpose. Well, Jesus follows that with a conclusion in verse 8, where he says in verse 8, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. And literally there, it's they are no longer two, but one flesh. Marriage is a one flesh relationship. A couple, a male and female, become a unit before God. One writer said this, what God has joined together means that marriage makes an insoluble bond beyond human laws and beyond regula human regulation. Marriage is not meant to be temporary. Marriage is not meant to be easily broken. And marriage is meant to be lifelong, a covenant before God. A covenant before God. You could put it this way, marriage is a physical and spiritual partnership which produces godly offspring and spiritual growth. Stu Weber in the book Tender Warrior shares this about his own marriage. He says, we live in a hope-so world. There are few certainties in this life Ours is a world of dreams, hopes, and wishful thinking. Everyone hopes their ship will come in, but we joke, a trifle uncomfortable, that only death and taxes are certain. We hope that our marriages will work out. We hope that we will find fulfillment. We hope that our children will turn out okay. We hope that we'll be able to keep a decent job. Everyone would love to change their hope to certainty, and we can in the things that matter, the things inside. A real man brings, and he's writing, of course, the men in The Tender Warrior, a real man brings certainty to his world by the power of a promise, by the power of a promise. He says, Linda and I married just over a quarter century ago, and we had not a whit of an inkling of what those 25-plus years would bring. How could we possibly have imagined what the winds of the years would blow into our lives? War in Vietnam, an agonizing separation, financial pressure, miscarriage, the stress of ministry, the pain of criticism, the weight of responsibility, and more. When we stood together at the altar that sunny afternoon, we couldn't have guessed a tenth of it. But we didn't need to. We made a promise. We recited a vow. 
Out of the whole world, we chose each other. And the power of that choice, that promise has kept us. What a, what a great statement. The power of that promise, the power of that choice has kept us. You don't have to know what the future is going to hold. You need only to keep your promise. Keep your promise. He said, out of the whole world we chose each other. And the power of that choice, that promise has kept us. There is no question, and, and listen to this because this is such great honesty. And if, any, if every one of us were to be honest, we could say this is true in our own thinking. There's no question in either of our minds that we could find a better mate. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. There's always someone out there better than you. There will always be someone more beautiful, more intelligent, more wealthy, more witty, more competent, more sensitive, or sensual. But that's a non-issue to Linda and me. The toxin of comparison has been neutralized and washed away by the sacred antitoxin of a promise. What a, what a great statement. You see, marriage is not meant to be temporary. It's not meant to be easily broken. It is meant to be a lifelong union, a covenant, a promise before God, a physical, spiritual partnership which produces godly offspring and spiritual growth. We read in verse 9, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Therefore as what God, verse 9, has joined together, let man not separate. A marriage ceremony is not just a meaningful ritual. A marriage ceremony is not just an excuse for a party. A marriage ceremony is not just fulfilling legal responsibilities. A marriage ceremony is a covenant before God to be faithful to a lifelong union, a covenant which is attended by God. What the scripture is saying here, both Old and New Testament, is that something spiritual, something supernatural happens at a wedding ceremony. God does a joining of the two into one in every sense. We don't often think about that. We often think of a marriage ceremony as just something we have to get through and preferably in about 30 minutes. But as we stand before God, it's not just the preacher's words by the power vested me, whatever the words are that preachers get to say. I pronounce you man and wife. God does it. God does the pronouncing. God does the joining. Something supernatural happens. So it's not just an excuse for a party. It's not just a meaningful ritual. It's not just fulfilling legal responsibility. It is a covenant before God to be faithful 
to be faithful to a lifelong union. And then Jesus adds, what God has joined together that is joined as one flesh. Let man not separate. Now, there's an interesting thing here. Uh, the word anthropos there, there's, usually it's taken of as being one of the partners in the marriage, generically man. That is, a man or a woman uh, can choose to separate, can choose to divorce their mate. What he is saying here, and it probably that's a part of what he's saying here, but when he's saying here, let man not separate, he's also speaking of the permanence of a marriage relationship and acknowledging that no ecclesiastical body has the right to separate those that God has joined together. So it's not just that a man or a woman who in covenants to be married stays together and is joined together by God, it is, uh, and, and that they should not separate, they should not divorce. Um, it is also that a government or ecclesiastical body should not interfere with marriage and should not uh, announce a divorce. Well, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. The disciples questioned Jesus in the house without the crowds being a part of the discussion. Now, to set, get the whole sense of what Jesus is saying here, you have to also compare this to the parallel passages. And the parallel passage in Matthew con contains what is commonly called the exception clause. The exception clause. Turn with me to Matthew 5 and verse 32. Matthew 5 and verse 32. It's the parallel passage to our passage in Mark. Matthew 5 and verse 32. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking again. Uh, he adds something here that wasn't in Mark. And Jesus is speaking here and says, I'll, I'll get verse 31 to get the context. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital un unfaithfulness, except for marital unfaithfulness, it's called the exception clause. Jesus makes exception to the no divorce teaching. And the exception is marital unfaithfulness. The word in Greek is pornea. Pornea. And I'll explain a little about that word in just a moment. I tell you that anyone, Jesus is saying here, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And then if you'll look with me at Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, this is another parallel passage. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9 
where Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except, and there's our exception clause again, except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, there's a couple of things here. Verse 12, we read here, uh, the disciples question him in verse 10. Then in verse 12, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. That particular statement is only found in Mark. And the reason for that is uh, they, he is writing for a Roman audience. And you'll remember, I hope, from last week that according to the Jews, only a man could get a divorce. A woman could not get a divorce under, under uh, Deuteronomy 24. But uh, in Rome, Rome allowed a woman to initiate a divorce. So that is why uh, Mark here adds verse 12, if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits <coughs> adultery. But the point here is there is an exception clause here. God, first and foremost, and I hope we will remember that as we look at what this exception clause is and what it means, I hope we, were, we will remember this, that God's desire for a broken marriage is forgiveness and reconciliation. <clears throat> God's desire for a broken marriage is forgiveness forgiveness, and reconciliation. The, what Jesus is saying here by the exception clause is not meant to say that the first thing a person should do, even if there is adultery in the relationship, if, if that should happen, the first thing they should do is divorce, separate and divorce. Jesus, the Bible God's desire is reconciliation. God's desire is reconciliation. Well, this uh, exception clause found in Matthew 19, verse 9, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, is translated in the NIV, except for marital unfaithfulness. In other words, Jesus is teaching that the only instance in which divorce can be considered biblically at least uh, in the Gospels, is for adultery. For, as the NIV translates it, marital unfaithfulness. The NASB and the Net Bible translates it except for immorality. The word is pornea. The word is pornea except for pornea, that is immorality or marital unfaithfulness, makes her or him commit moikia, which is adultery. So there's differences about why did Jesus use the word pornea here instead of moikia, which is translated adultery. Why did he use the word pornea here? Why did Jesus use the word pornea? John MacArthur, who does a very good job uh, translating this and, and explaining the, the, uh, what Jesus is saying here. The condition, except for marital unfaithfulness, except for immorality, uh, except for 
uh, on chastity, as one of the translations translates it, is not a way out that God provides, but is the only grounds for divorce that he will recognize. In other words, while the, uh, Jesus is standing for marriage, he is allowing an exception to that. And the exception is immorality, uh, adultery, marital unfaithfulness. Uh, MacArthur says the condition except for unchastity is not a way out that God provides, but is the only grounds for divorce that he will recognize. Some say that this exception clause allows divorce for Jews only and only in the case uh, only in the case of the sin of consanguinity, that is marrying a near relative, a practice that's, forgiven, that's forbidden in Leviticus 18. This view is propounded by those who wish to believe that there are no biblical grounds for divorce by Christians. It's a view, though, that's held by very few people, and as MacArthur said, it's usually held by those who... Uh, wish to believe there are no biblical grounds for divorce. Jesus is clearly establishing the biblical ground of adultery here. MacArthur writes, Adultery, another reality that God never intended, is the only thing that can break the bond of marriage. Now, this is important. In fact, under the Old Testament law, Adultery would necessarily dissolve a marriage. Can anybody guess why that is? Because they were adulterer, adulterers were stoned to death. If somebody committed adultery, the adulterer was stoned to death. That surely releases a person from the marital bond. But by the time Jesus is speaking here, they no longer did that. By, by the time Jesus is speaking here, they no longer used stoning on adulterers. So, as MacArthur says, in fact, under the Old Testament law, adultery would necessarily dissolve a marriage because the guilty party was put to death. And that death of that guilty party would free the other person to remarry. So... Um, what MacArthur summarizes, and I think this is a good summary, unchastity, pornea, which is the, the Greek word from which we get what word? Pornography, pornography. Pornea, unchastity, uh, unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness, in, marital immorality uh, refers to any illicit sexual intercourse whether or not either of the parties is married. It was a broad term that included adultery, as other texts using a form of pornea indicate. Because Matthew 5, 31 and 32, which we read a few moments ago, focuses on marriage and divorce, the primary unchastity involved here would be adultery, but pornea also included incest, prostitution, homosexuality, and bestiology, bestiality, all of the sexual acts for which the Old Testament demanded the death penalty. In other words, what MacArthur is saying and what other biblical scholars are saying is that Jesus allows one exception. 
Now, Paul's going to allow a second in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but in this section of Scripture in Matthew, Jesus allows one exception, and that is where there is adultery, the marriage bond is broken, the, the oneness relationship is broken, and therefore the person, the innocent party, is free to divorce and free to remarry. But, but, and this is the thing I want to emphasize above all, is that that is not God's first choice. That is not God's first choice. God's first choice is forgiveness and reconciliation. God's first choice is forgiveness and reconciliation. So here in this exception clause in Matthew 19.9 and Matthew 5.32, the use of the word pornea means nothing except that Jesus used it in this sense for variety and as a synonym for moikia, which is translated adultery. J. Vernon McGee said this, Mark 2 is the strongest statement against divorce that is found in Scripture. How is it to be interpreted? All the Scriptures on divorce should be brought together and considered before a proper induction, that is in uh, Bible study, can be made. The parallel passage in Matthew lists fornication as the one basis for divorce. Why did Mark omit this? Mark was writing to the Romans who did not know the Mosaic law, while Matthew was writing for Israel who had, who had and knew the Mosaic law of divorce. So it must be considered in that light. The Mosaic system took care of the unfaithful wife or husband. They were stoned to death, according to Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 24. According to the Mosaic law, a husband or wife who is guilty of adultery may be treated as dead by the other mate. Scripture does recognize one ground for divorce, unfaithfulness. The innocent party is free to marry, it would seem, from Christ's words. I'll close with one more thing. Well, you know, actually looking at that clock, I'll close right now. <laughs> Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we know this is such a serious subject. And we do, we do pray, Lord, for uh, marriages of our church. We pray that you will strengthen them, that they will, each one of us who is married, will seek what you desire for our marriages and we know, Lord, that because we are differing personalities, we know that because we all have a sin nature, and because of that sin nature, we have a desire for the things we want, a desire to be selfish. I pray, Lord, that we would remember that, and I pray that we would bring you into our marriages that we would offer the reconciliation and forgiveness to our mate that you offer to us in the cross at Calvary. Thank you, Lord. Please build our marriages. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.